I know I'm in trouble when he does that. But uh, he said, no, he wanted to share with me a, a conversation. He overheard three uh, U.S. currency bills talking, a hundred, a fifty, and a one. And they were talking with each other, and the one said, Benjamin, you know, what's it like to be a hundred dollar bill? What, what's your life like? And the hundred said, oh, man, it's fantastic. I travel the world. I go to Disney World. I go on exotic vacations all the time. Oh, it's fantastic. I live a wonderfully plush life. I love my life. He said, wow. Fifty, what's your life like? Fifty said, I got a good life. Go out to eat often. You know, catch a game or the, or the play, or the movies. I enjoy my life. I have a good, comfortable, nice life. And they said, well, well, one, what is your life like? And he said, oh, Boring, boring, boring. It's always the same old thing. Church, church, church. <laughs> you know, it's a good joke to tell after the offering, right? Not, not, not before it. We're in the middle of a series, um, Money Talks. And it's a difficult series because the uh, culture views with suspicion and distrust, organized religion, churches talking about money. And so we've avoided that. Really, I've been here about three years now. We talked about it once when we dealt with the Ten Commandments. It was kind of hard. Thou shalt not steal. You know, we needed to address something with that one. Uh, and then we did a three-week deal on confessions of a stuffaholic, we called it, which is really how to manage money. So out of 150 messages, roughly, we've dealt with the money issue about four times. Now the issue is, and this is where it's a difficulty, is that Jesus talks more about money than any other subject. You know, roughly two-thirds of his parables, he's dealing with money. And so if you don't address it once in a while, it's almost like preachers malpractice, you know, avoid what Jesus is talking about, about so, so often. We just don't want to address that. Now, this is interesting to me. When you think, Jesus was an economizer of words, right? I doubt he said a lot of useless, frivolous, wasteful things. Everything he said probably had intention. And it was bringing glory to God. And it was either bringing people to him or showing them their condemnation if they don't. But mostly it was, it was for his people. It was building them up. It was strengthening. It was encouraging. It was warning them. And when he talks about money so much, you know, he's, he's not asking for an offering. Jesus, my understanding is, never took an offering. And never asked for money. He lived in poverty. He was content to, to do so. But he warned us. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knows that his number one competitor, that which he is competing for the alliance of your heart and mine, is money. And on the totem pole of this world, not just 21st century America, though it's probably heightened here, but in all the universe, you've got money and sex and, and uh, comfort and power. And, but money's at the top. And Jesus knows that's the number one idol. That's the number one battle for our There's battle raging for our, our heart. Because, remember he's the great economizer of words, he loves us. Not because there's anything wrong with money. Money's a good thing. It's, it's got some great uh, uses. Uh, but it makes a lousy God. 
is kind of a little bit like arsenic. You know, arsenic has actually got some great uses. It strengthens some, some alloys. It's, it's, it's got some great uses. But if it gets into your system, it will kill you. The love of money, I mean, money's a good thing. But the love of money, if it gets into your heart, it's as toxic to you spiritually as arsenic is to you physically. This is why Paul writes in First Timothy, he says, Those who want to get rich... You want a little more money? I mean, it wouldn't hurt to have a little more money, right? Everybody who plays a little... I want to get rich. Fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just look at that. Should be, that's quite the warning. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I mean, just straight up evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs because you cannot have a love for money and a love for God at the same time. Jesus already said that. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is what Paul is warning us. God by the name of Paul Piff, he's, he's uh, UC Berkeley. They just came out with a, a survey. I think it was a study. It was published not too long back. CNN did a deal on it a couple weeks ago. Fascinating study. Controversial. It's on the effects of, of wealth, what it does to us. And this is some of the things they mention. And it's, uh, again, it's not my study. This is UC Berkeley. You don't agree with much else of what they say, but let me just throw this out to you. He says this they, in their study, and this was 30 different studies, thousands of people all across the United States. In their study, they said the drivers of high-end cars, BMWs, Mercedes, Porsches, were three to four times more likely to break driving laws than those in more modest models. The thought was, the understanding was, there's a sense of entitlement. There's a, the rules don't apply to me kind of deal. They did a study of a, a back room where they would bring a person in under the guise of, we're going to give you a survey in a private room. And as they, the facilitator sat the person down, there was a bowl of candy right there. And they said, you know, the candy's actually for these, these surveys we do with children. But if you want a piece, I guess you can have a piece. Meanwhile, there's a hidden camera on this person. So when the facilitator leaves, people who made $150,000 a year, twice as likely to take the candy than people who made 50000 or less. They did a study with dice. And if you rolled the dice and you got such and such a number, uh, I forget what it was. But if you reported that, you would get a $50 gift card. And they said people who made $150,000 plus a year four times as likely to cheat and tell them a wrong number, different, just so they could get the gift card versus someone that made 50000 or less. They said that people who make 150000 plus a year, four times as likely to lie in negotiations, four times as likely to endorse unethical behavior if the end is going to be advantageous for themselves, four times as likely to steal from work. They did a study with the game of Monopoly where they would bring in two people and they would just, uh, they would tell them, one of you guys is going to have special favors, the other one not. And they rolled the dice to see who the person with the special favors would be. And that person who got the special favors got a real cool looking piece to represent them as they went around the board. The other person had a pretty simple piece. The specially favored person started off with $2,000. The other person only 1000 The specially favored person, if they wanted to, could roll two dice. The other person could only roll one. The specially favored person, when every time they crossed go, they collected $200. The other person only collected $100. The game was rigged. So this guy over here would win. And they said that almost all the time, 
This person, after they started getting some power, they started building up their hotels on their land, they started manifesting unseemly behavior, a sense of entitlement, a cockiness, a, uh, a demanding spirit, a lack of gratefulness. They started looking at the other person across the table from them as in a pejorative sort of manner. Uh, money just has that power. It can do that. I think this might be why Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Nothing against rich people. Rich money has just got dangerous to it. Which is why Jesus warns against it. Now, knowing God is you know God. And if he loves us, and he knows this has got so much power, don't you think he might come up with some sort of a, a plan, some sort of idea to help us? with this battle that's constantly raging in our heart. It's, as long as marketers are around, it's not going to just go away. Isn't there? I think God may have come up with a plan. What we want to do this morning is we want to look at his plan for his people, starting in the Old Testament, and think this through. Now, when we think of Old Testament and God's idea of, of giving and that sort of thing, we all think right away of tithing. Yeah, the tithing. Well, that's a piece of the puzzle, but it's much bigger than that. First thing we want to look at is something called first fruits. Fascinating. First fruits. This comes first. First fruits. Look at this is all over scripture, Old and New Testament, but Exodus 23 says this. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Proverbs 3:9 says honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. This idea of first fruits though is going to expand all over uh, the scripture, especially in, in, in the Pentateuch, to every area of your life. It first roots incorporates your child. The first child you have belongs to God. And you're not supposed to sacrifice him or her, but you, you, you redeem him or her. The firstborn of your cattle. You've got a, a cow, she calves. You don't know if she's going to have any other calves ever again. You're dependent on this for your livelihood. First one belongs to God. You sacrifice it. First sheep, the very first lamb it has, may not have any other lambs ever again. The first one you give to God. Your produce, when, when it comes time for harvest, it doesn't say an exact number here, but some portion of your harvest, the first you harvest, if it's a full crop, the first off of the trees, the first shearing of, of, of the, the sheep, all of it, goes to God. Now, it's different from the tithe because the tithe is what comes at the end. If you, Tithe means 10%, right? And so if you're going to give 10%, you pretty much got to know the total before you can do that. First root is on the front end. You give in the beginning. Now, again, think of these guys for a minute because they are hanging out in a very agrarian, very uh, uh, shepherdish culture where this is their money. This is what they're depending on. If winter comes and their pantry's not full, their kids are going to starve to death. If, if winter comes and they don't have some flocks to trade and barter and they can't for, for wool and for, for milk, they're going to be in trouble. And yet, what they're supposed to do, first one born, first port of the crops, before they can harvest anything else, they're supposed to bring it and give it to God before they know if their pantry's going to have anything else in it. It may not. And what they're doing with that is they're saying this. God, I know all this came from you. And I want you to know that I'm worshiping you, not what you've given me. And I want you to know that even if the locust and hail come, and I get nothing else, you're worth more than I am. That's my mindset, so I just want to say thank you. First fruits. 
that principle of first fruits is a tool that he's given so that the money doesn't grab a hold of, of our heart. Now, today we like to practice last fruits, don't we? Last fruits, that's the way it is. Because when you've got to give the money to Uncle Sam, of course, because he's going to want that. And then, but then you've got to do retirement, of course, and then there's a savings account, don't forget your emergency fund. And then there's a you know, car, because your car's going to break down sooner or later, so you better be, be prepared for that in kids' college. Oh my goodness, let's not even talk about that one. And there's clothing and entertainment, and you've got all your funds that have to have their money, and then when it pay the bills, you better do that. But then when after it's all said and done, if there's anything left over that you think you might be able to part with, that's what, we, that's what goes to God. We do last fruits. And what do we do when we're doing last fruits? What are we saying? We're saying, well, I've got to take care of myself first because, God, you made that come through for me. And I've got to make sure. See, I've got to make sure. Practicing last fruits versus first fruits is a sure sign, a sure way for money to grab hold of the heart. That's why God came up with the principle. Now, think for a minute on all this stuff. Um, because God, if there's a God, right? He's over the whole universe. It's in his hand. Does he really need your money? Little speck that you are on that little speck of a planet called Earth and this little speck of this galaxy. Does he really need what you've got? I don't think so. God does not need your money. He doesn't want your money. If he did, he'd take it. He's God. He can do that, right? He wants your heart. But he knows where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. And the reality principle in Scripture is if he doesn't have your wallet, he probably doesn't have your heart. Uh, he's, he's not interested in your, your, your money. Also, n- know this as we get into this. The, the giving in the Old Testament was not real easy. It's really, it's really not. I mean, it's a very complex, sophisticated system. We might think, well, f- how come? And all I would say is go read your IRS tax code and you realize that these things are complex. It's a complex thing. And it is here. And sometimes it's hard to decipher exactly what is what. First fruits is pretty clear. Then you get into a thing called tithing. And with tithing, you need to know, we think, well, that's 10% because the word tithe means a tenth of. It means 10%. Sometimes we use the word loosely. If we mean any money that we give into the offering plate is a tithe, well, that's not, it might be a gift and that's good, that's nice. But a tithe is 10%, right? It's, it's, it's 10%. Um, the Hebrews, you might say, well, they gave 10%. They gave three tithes. The first tithe that they gave was the temple tithe. You see, Leviticus, this is a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. It goes on and on. This is your, your temple tithe. They brought this to the Lord. And notice this is different from first fruits because first fruits, the first one, belong to the Lord. Here, every tenth one also is going to belong to the Lord. And you brought this to the temple. It paid for the priests. It paid for the Levites. Kept the temple stuff and the culture going. It was, it was your temple tithe. But then there was a second tithe. And we think, oh my goodness, how many tithes? Second tithe. Now this one is fascinating though. You'll, you'll like this one, I think. In uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, excuse me. Is that where we're at? Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. It says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's produce each year. Look what you want you to do with it. 
eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you can learn to revere the Lord your God always. When they wrote this, they were still in the desert, right? And they hadn't gotten to the Holy Land yet. Uh, they were told that before they got, got going into it, that once they got in there and once they got established, God was going to choose a city there that was kind of going to be like their headquarters. It was going to be the place where God's name would be. It's where the place where the temple would be built. It was going to be Jerusalem. But they, they didn't know the name of the place yet. They just said that one day you're going to get to this place. And he says, bring your tithe there. He says, but if that place is too distant... And you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you. You see this. Can you imagine you're up in Galilee someplace and you've had a good year, bumper crops and stuff. And your herds did well and so you've got all this produce and all these herds and you're supposed to make this trek down to Jerusalem. I mean, how? And so he says, if you've got too much, don't worry about it. Just sell it. Just get the silver. Just get the silver. And then what you do with the silver is fascinating. It says, it says, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place Lord your God will choose. That's Jerusalem. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented, fermented drink, or anything you wish. She says, party, go for it. That's fine. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Don't you love that? This was a commanded party. And this was a big party because this one was a whole tithe. Now, we might say, well, listen, it's just for me and it's a party. I've got to cut back. We can't have an elaborate one this year. Oh, no, this is required under law. You have to have a big party. God does not want to just be associated with sacrifice and solemnity and it's a pain and it's a trouble. He wants to be associated with this a good time sometimes. It's fun to follow him. It was required. And you can imagine, you get to Jerusalem with a tithe. Well, your whole, this was going to be a big party. It probably would be multiple days. It probably would incorporate the folk in the, in the, the temple or tabernacle. It probably incorporate the disenfranchised and the poor. They would come as well. Huge party. But no... That this was not like a birthday party. This was not like just a secular, we're just going to have a fun time party. This party is in the presence of God. This is a God party. He's there. And he's having a good time with you. And now don't take the, get too literally with buying the fermented drink and stuff and saying, okay, good deal. I'm going to use, I know I'm using my tithe for today. No, let's, let's just hold off on that one right now. There's, there's, a, there's a tithe, a temple tithe. There's a celebration tithe annually. But then there's also a poor person's tithe. Not for poor persons per se, but to minister to them. At the end of every three years, this is verse 28 of Deuteronomy 14, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your own towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So every three years you take another tithe and there's Levite towns all over the nation and there's there's storehouses basically. You're storing up food there for the poor. It seems to me that these guys have got Tithe one, the temple tithe. Tithe two, the celebration tithe. Every three years they got another tithe. That's 23 and a third percent. That's what they tithed. You want to tithe Old Testament tithe? Oh, I don't know about that. 
I don't know these guys. Now, when we talk about tithing, for we consider because the word means ten percent. Well, we're going to give ten percent, and when we talk about tithing, ten percent. What's the first question that comes up? What do you think? Gross or net? <laughs> Gross or net? That's it. That's the first one. That's probably the only one that comes up. Gross or net? Are we talking here? Now, um, we can ask that question for a lot of different reasons. Personally, I know when, when I would ask that question, what I really wanted to know was what's the least amount I can give and still like still fall in that godly category. You know, I mean, I don't want to fall. I don't want to be a pagan or anything. I want to do what I'm supposed to do here. But boy, I don't want to do a whole lot more because you know, I mean, I got to take care of of stuff and. Uh, and so, gross or net? I think that the the answer, because this is not law for us, this is a slippery slope type of question. I think that the principle of first fruits, though, pretty much answers it for us. If we let Uncle Sam take the first fruits, but really that that difference between gross and net is really artificial, isn't it? I mean, it's something we've we've invented. And I'm going to say this, if in fact we want to do that, that's okay, then we might as well just also add to our real estate taxes to it. Don't you think? I mean, those are taxes. Well, let's add that to it. And on top of that one, insurance premiums are kind of like taxes. Let's add that there. And you know, I use my home, but you guys, if you have a small group in your home sometimes, well, you use your home for ministry. Let's add everything there that it costs to run that household. And not only that, but on my computer, i got some Bible software. Let's put the computer costs on there. You know what? The way I understand Scripture, my kids are a gift from the Lord. They're really His kids. I'm raising God's kids. So so every cost for my child, you know, we're creative. I think we can reduce this. We'll actually all love to tithe before this morning's done. But if we look at first roots and we go back and we say, okay, what did God give me this year? Before anybody else, Uncle Sam or Mill Creek or... uh, college education, before anybody else got their hands into it, what did God give me this year? I think that's, that's a, a starting point. You say, okay, well, well hang on, hang on. They get, they're tithing. they got the first fruits thing going on. They're tithing. Well, how much am I supposed to give? We're not there yet. Because there was another gift that they had to bring, the Israelites, and that was your poor people provision that they had to be a part of. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. I love this because it doesn't give you exact specifications as far as what the edges should be. Do they need to be one foot, two feet, three feet? Uh, you could, you were kind of cheap. You could just make it barely inches, couldn't you? Uh, but, but you're not supposed to harvest the edges of your field. If, in fact, you go through once and there's some grapes or whatever that really weren't ripe yet, you, you can't go back and get them. If, in fact, you go through and you forget a row, oh, you can't go back. If you drop the sheath, you didn't realize it, to, you can't go back. Remember, this is what Ruth has got going on. She's following behind the people who are gleaning, getting that which they, they left behind because they were leaving something for poor. So I don't know how much that's worth, but that's got to be worth something because all these guys are farmers. Not only was, was there a, a, a poor people provision, but there was also a tax. There was a one-third shekel temple tax. Every Jew, rich or poor, every Jewish person had to pay this one-third shekel temple tax. Not a lot of money. Two days' wages, most probably. But it's adding up. Why don't you think this is adding up? And you say, oh, man, these guys are, are, this is crazy. But it gets worse. 
Because on top of that, after that's all said and done, you know what? Then they took up an offering. <laughs> You're saying they did what? Who would give them this offering thing? But believe it or not, people gave. Exodus chapter 35. Uh, begin verse 20. It says, then the whole, these guys are, this is kind of like a building campaign. They're getting ready to build the tabernacle. They're going to do the same sort of thing when they build the temple. It says, then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering. You're thinking, that's not going to be too many people, right? I can't imagine too many folk whose heart, they're all broke at this point. Uh, But to the Lord, they brought it. Verse 22, it says, and all who were willing, men and women alike, they came and they brought gold jewelry and all kinds of brooches and earrings and rings and ornaments. They presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. You say, well, I'm sure they didn't get very much. Going on to ch- uh, chapter 36. It says, And the people continued to bring free will offerings, morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, The people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord's commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. No more offerings. You got it? Can you imagine? This is a treasurer's dream, isn't it? You guys, no more offering. You're giving too much money. We don't know what to do with it. Just hang on to it. And you're saying, oh, man, I got two more bags of gold. Kidding. No, no, you just got to do something else. We can... What a deal these guys had. I can't believe this. What an amazing deal. They took a free will offering. All the people whose heart was moved, who desired, gave. And they had so much. That they had to say, stop, stop. Ancient Israel lived in a radical, radical culture of generosity. They're tools that God invented in order to to protect their heart. You might say, well, how much are you going to tell me I'm supposed to give? Well, hang on, we're not there yet. Because in the New Testament, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler, right? And what's he say? He says, give it all. And then he hangs out with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, after he makes restitution in a major way for his mistakes, he gives 50% of all his stuff. And then in Luke 21, you got the poor old widow who gives only two mites, but worth half a penny, but it was all she had. And Jesus is there applauding. It was all she had. And then in in Acts chapter 4, you got Barnabas who sells a field and he brings all of it and he gives it to the church. And then... In Acts chapter 5, this is, this, is, this is telling, right after the Barnabas thing. It says, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They looked and they saw the kind of accolades that Barnabas was getting, and they said, man, we can... But with his wife's full knowledge, they kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Now look what he says here. This is important. Didn't it all belong to you before it was sold? In other words, who told you you had to do this? No one told you. You didn't have to sell this field. You didn't have to do it. And then he, and then he says, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? I mean, you, could, you could have given any amount. But you can't tell people you're giving all of it and only give a percentage, give a small part. I mean, just be honest. Ananias... Money has gripped your heart, hasn't it? Money has won. He said, you don't have to give any of this. But when you give it, your heart has to be right. 
And Ananias, it, it, it hasn't been. It's not. Now, this is a, a, a intense uh, text. Because when you think about the Israelites, you think about the idea that on top of everything else, I mean, especially at these times, these guys are getting taxed by the Romans on top of everything else. But you had um, some extra offerings that came up, required offerings in wartime. You had some extra uh, demanded uh, sacrifices that they had to give uh, at special times in their history. You had forced labor that had to go on during the monarchy. You might be required to, to work for free for, for the government. On top of that, year, uh, the Sabbath year, every seven years, you know what? You couldn't plant anything in your fields. Nothing. What was that worth? I don't know. Then year of Jubilee. If you happen to be a business person, year of Jubilee, every 50 years, that's a tough year because you've got to let all of your servants go. And, and you don't just let them go. You've got to pack their bags and you've got to pack them rich, Scripture says. And on top of that, all the land that you acquired, illegally, you have to give it back. These guys were, it was a very deep, deep culture of generosity. So how much are we supposed to give? It's not that, not that easy. Um, a percentage number just isn't that easy. I know Teresa and myself, I mean, personally, I kind of grew up in the church, grew up with this idea of giving. Uh, we certainly have made stupid financial decisions over the years. But we try to honor God with our finances. This year, we will have given between 11.5% and 12.5% of gross the vast majority of it coming to First Alliance Church, which I believe is where it's supposed to. Biblically, it's supposed to. This is our home. We believe in what we're doing here. Our kids are here. Uh, we also support four different missionaries. Now, I didn't get into this because I was really missions-minded per se. I was a youth pastor, and I had kids starting to go in the mission field, and they were sending me letters back to support them. And I thought, oh, no. Did I tell them they're supposed to go to the mission field? Oh, i got to put my money where my mouth is on this stuff. So right now, we're supporting uh, Dave and Megan, their inner-city missionaries in Minneapolis with, with crew, Campus Crusade. Pete and Linda, Pete's husband, uh, or Linda's husband, Pete, flies for MAF over Brazil. I've got, we've got a couple, neat, neat kid. Uh, he and his wife are flying under the radar in a creative access country. Uh, we're supporting them. And one of my youth leaders ditched me one year to go to one of these mission trips we went on. That's, those are dangerous because he ditched me to go become full-time missionary with these guys. He's on the, the Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation in Dunseith, North Dakota. Gary and Jean are incredible. I don't have any doubt in my mind. For every dollar I give them, I get back a dollar fifty worth of, of work. Incredible people. Also, God has allowed us. We support two different Compassion International kids. We've always kind of done that. Before I knew Teresa, I had a compassion kid, and Teresa had one, and so when we got together, it was just natural. We'll just, so we got two now. Uh, also, God has allowed us to support some parachurch uh, organizations. We support Compassion as well as Samaritan's Purse, help out on occasion uh, when someone wants to go on a short-term mission deal. Uh, as God has blessed us, we help that way. Once in a while, we come across a need, and God taps our heart and says, yeah, this one's got your name on it. And so God has allowed us to be a part of that. I do not want you to know, I do not claim to be a, an exemplary model of sacrificial giving. Uh, we live comfortably. Uh, we, we hold a mortgage. It's the only indebtedness we have. But we, I've got friends who have sacrificed much greater than me in order to give more. Uh, one day, maybe we'll, we'll, we're trying to get that direction more. But, but 
here's the, the, the issue for all of us. For me, for all of us. We've got a war raging between money and between God. And it's not going away. And the decisions we make today will, will go a long way to determining who's getting the upper hand there. So let me throw this challenge out at you. Some of y'all have been walking with the Lord a long time. And you've got, you're beyond me, and some, you just, you're just nailing, you've got some stuff all together that you're a model. But this area, you know what, you might not be a model. And no one really knows but you and the Lord. 2014 is just around the corner, perhaps for you. 2014, you would say, you know what? Malachi 3, where God says, test me in this. 2014 is going to be that year for us. We're going to tithe. And I know you can't just add dollars to the giveaway pile without subtracting them from somewhere else. It's going to, it requires a, a, a shift in values and lifestyle stuff. I understand that. But maybe that's for you. Maybe some of you all might be a new believer or you're kind of new here and you're going, whoa, whoa, hang on, whoa, cowboy, hang on a second, man, 10% off the top. Are you serious? Are you, are you crazy? Are you? And they might, please know, we're not saved by giving. And you don't get more points with God because you give more and he's not more happy with you and loves you more because you've given more money. That's not the way it, it works, right? You know that. You know that's not the way it is. Also, you know God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. And so for you, maybe you would say, you know, man, 2014, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bump it up 1%. You know, we're just going to bump it up 1%. We're going to see what happens. And maybe one day down the road, but you know what? We're not going to, we can't start there. We're going to start doing this. That's where we're going. And, and let me just throw this in there. This is not so that FAC will get my, more money. Don't give it here. Give it someplace else. That's fine. Here's the deal, though. As a believe, body of believers, wouldn't it be intense if we honored God in this area? In this, you know, the average Christian gift in the United States most affluent, one of the most affluent countries in the world was, I read two studies this past week. One, it was under 3%. The second one, it was under 2%. The most wealthy nation in the world. And this is what we're doing. For people who are saying, money doesn't have my heart, God has my heart. This is an area, just like everything else, prayer and Bible study, we just need to constantly be moving forward. Never, but tithing is a great floor it's a terrible ceiling. So we just need to continually be moving forward. So that battle for our heart is not won by cash. It's not won by gold. It's won by our God.